Well, good morning, West Highland Church, those present and those watching online. It was mentioned a few moments ago that I was a pastor in Texas. You might have concluded from that that I'm from Texas. You might have been expecting a strong southern drawl, Texan accent. accent. You will be disappointed or perhaps relieved. Um, I grew up in Markham, nowhere near as exotic as Texas, uh, just the other side of Toronto. But my family, we moved down to Texas in 2008, and I pastored down there for close to 11 years and then returned to Cambridge just a couple of years ago, up the road, uh, where I now serve, as was mentioned, at Heritage College and Seminary. Some of your number are deeply involved, entrenched at Heritage, and uh, we are exceedingly thankful for them, and we are particularly thankful for West Highland Church and your participation in that very important ministry. Uh, we appreciate your prayers. We covet your prayers, as always. Uh, the semester started on Monday, the West winter semester, and as you are well aware, any institution, any organization navigating the challenges of COVID meets with one or two frustrations along the way, and we've had our share of them. And so we would certainly appreciate your prayers that the Lord would continue to give us much wisdom from above and strength because, you know, it's wearying, isn't it? It gets wearying. And uh, pray the Lord would give us strength this coming semester. And indeed, it will be fruitful for both staff, faculty, staff and faculty, and all of the, the students who, who are with us. I would also ask you to pray because in October, November, Last year, we launched a capital campaign uh, to put up a new seminary building on the current property. I think the total cost of the project is somewhere near $13 million. Uh, by God's grace, God's goodness, we already have over 10 million committed. Um, so we're so thankful for that. We've launched it, uh, the plans are in place. Hopefully we'll be breaking ground here uh, this year but pray that that would go according to plan and pray that it would contribute to the fruitful ministry of heritage as we seek to equip uh, men and women for life and ministry across Canada and, and around the world. I want you to continue to worship with me by turning now in God's word to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. 2 Thessalonians chapter three. Since the summer, I have been studying in my personal study, so as I have time, so kind of off and on, I have been studying Paul's prayers in his two letters to the church at Thessalonica. It might surprise you to hear that there are actually 10 little prayers tucked away in these two letters. And so I've been studying these, I'm about halfway through, and so I would like to draw your attention to one of these prayers today, and trust that the Lord will bless it richly to our hearts, and truly direct our hearts heavenward. And here it is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the 16th verse, where Paul writes, 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. One more time. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. It's a beautiful word, peace. Sadly, it is a misunderstood word. Peace, and it has taken me a long time to learn this. Actually, I'm not sure I'm quite there. I'm still learning this. That peace is not the absence of trials. It is not the absence of struggles. It is not the absence of difficulties. Peace is not the absence of pain, of fear, or grief. What is peace, biblical peace? It is a calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul amid the storms of life. And so there are times when I think to myself how lovely, how wonderful it would be as a family simply to move, I don't know, somewhere in northern Ontario, not too far north, but farther north than we are now, and uh, a home with a nice library, nice hearth, fireplace, our dog in tow, cross-country skis for the winter, golf clubs for the summer, and just go away from it all, escape it all, and what wonderful peace would overflow my heart, my soul. That is a complete misconception, misunderstanding of the nature of biblical peace. It is not to flee from life's harsh realities. It is not to be free from the difficulties that life brings. It is to know, it is to enjoy a calm assurance that simply lies deep within the trusting soul, even in the midst of life's harsh and at times uncertain realities. And so this is what we want to unpack together today. We want to do so on the basis of 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Paul's little prayer. And what we're going to ask of this text is basically three questions. Three questions, three answers that I pray will help impress upon our hearts the nature of biblical peace. The first question is this, who gives it? Or we might put it as follows, where does this peace come from? And so look to whom Paul addresses his prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself. Here's a good profitable little study for you this afternoon. You're looking for a little homework? Here it is. That phrase, the Lord of peace, or the God of peace, is found, by my reckoning anyway, at least seven times in the New Testament. The Lord of peace the God of peace. It is a description of God as he stands in relation to his people. Now check that, be very clear. It is not a description of God as he stands in relation to everyone. 
It is a description of God as he stands in relation to his people. Those who belong to him. He is the Lord of peace. And he is the Lord of peace to his people. Because he is our, he is our sovereign. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that he is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. He is the Lord of peace because he is our sovereign. He controls all things from the smallest dust particles in the beam of sunlight to the far away planets, planets in far off galaxies. All things from the smallest to the greatest controlled and governed by the Lord of peace who is our sovereign. Oh, we must learn to take this to heart. We must learn to appropriate this. We must learn to apply this in life. His providence, his sovereignty, it's absolute, isn't it? Nothing escapes his control. Nothing catches God off guard. Paul tells us there in Romans chapter 11 that all things are from him and through him and to him. You notice the three prepositions, very important prepositions in Scripture. I know you didn't, weren't coming here today for an English lesson, but very important, the prepositions. All things are from him, meaning what? He is the cause by which all things exist. All things are through him, meaning what? He is the means by which all things continue to exist. And all things are to him. And what does that mean? He is the purpose, the chief end for which all things exist. All things are from him, all things are through him, and all things are to him. You see, his sovereign rule is absolute. Not only is his sovereign rule absolute, but it is incomprehensible, isn't it? Right there again in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that. He declares his ways, his judgments are what? Inscrutable. They are past finding out. When it comes to the judgments of God, his sovereign rule, and his providential dealings with his people, we are entering the realm of the infinite. And now we who are finite are trying to grasp the infinite. It is the limited, trying to understand the limitless. The bound, trying to comprehend the boundless. His ways are not our ways. And his judgments are not our judgments. Unfathomable, inscrutable and ultimately incomprehensible. I don't know when the last time was you were on a plane. For most of us, it's probably been a couple of years, right? But you can still remember. You remember what it was like. There you go, you're on the plane, you walk down the aisleway, 21B, you sit down, it's a window seat. What can you see? Well, you got the back of the chair in front of you, right? And maybe a screen, if you're fortunate enough, you can watch something in flight. You have somebody sitting beside you. You can see him or her. 
stewards, stewardess, walking up and down the aisle. And out the window, there's the wing of a plane, and you can see a few clouds in flight, etc., etc., etc. The air traffic controller, what can he see from his vantage point? As you sit there on the plane, on the tarmac, your view, your grasp of what's going on around you, me, very limited. But the air traffic controller, there he gazes upon the entire airport, every plane on the tarmac, every plane on the runway, every plane in flight on those screens in front of him, tracking all that is going on. Do you see where I'm going with this? Our understanding, very, very limited. But God knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. Oh, but how we must appreciate this. His ways, his judgments, his providences are ultimately beyond our grasp, ultimately beyond our comprehension. They are absolute. They are incomprehensible. But understand this too, please. His providential dealings, his sovereign will is perfect. We read that in Psalm 18, verse 30. There the psalmist celebrates, very succinct statement, God's way is perfect. His way with his people is perfect. His way with you as a child of God is perfect. It is absolute. It is many times incomprehensible. Oh, but we can rest in this wonderful reality it is perfect. Do you believe that? God's way with Joseph was perfect. Even when he found himself in that hole, crying out to his brothers to have mercy. Even later when he was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and unjustly imprisoned, God's way with Joseph was perfect. God's way with Job was perfect. Even when he sat there having lost all his children, sons of daughters, scraping the boils from off his flesh. God's way with Naomi was perfect. Even as she stood beside the graves of her husband and son. God's way with Jonathan was perfect. Overlooked, overpassed for David. And Jonathan, rather, what was his destiny? To die an inglorious, lonely death beside his half-crazed father at the edge of a Philistine sword. And God's way with David was perfect. Even as he snuck out the back gate of the city of Jerusalem, to escape Absalom and his advancing armies. God's ways are perfect. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That he is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the Lord of peace as he stands in relation to his people. And he is the Lord of peace because he is our sovereign. And his sovereign rule is absolute. No challengers. 
His sovereign rule is oftentimes beyond our understanding. And his sovereign rule is always perfect. He is the Lord of peace, not only because he is our sovereign. He is the Lord of peace, secondly, because he is our redeemer. He is our redeemer. Jeremiah 17, 9, a statement many of us are familiar with. There we just simply read, simply put this tremendous declaration, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately sick. And there we come face to face with the human predicament. There we come face to face with the human reality. The heart is desperately sick. And I know many of you know that that goes completely contrary against the grain, swimming against the tide when it comes to how most people think today. We are immersed in a society that has imbibed nature and nurture. And because we live in a secular society, because we live in, in basically in a, in a worldview now that is materialistic, people seeking some sort of meaning between two poles of meaninglessness as they come from nothing, as they go to nothing. And within this materialistic worldview, view, as men and women try to explain human behavior, there are only basically two plausible explanations on the table. And the first is nature. Well, it's got to be biology. Right? Physiology or nurture, social environment, education, past experiences. And this to a great extent is how human behavior is explained in our world today. The Bible will have none of it. The Bible points us in a completely different direction and tells us that man's fundamental problem is far deeper and man's fundamental problem cannot be dismissed or explained away on the basis of biology or sociology. The problem is the heart. Man has this basic flaw operating system, the heart, and it is desperately sick. The Bible tells us we are I know this is painful for us to hear, but the bad news before the good news, the Bible tells us that by nature, we are selfaholics. Selfaholics. Lovers of self. That is the basic operating principle by which we function in life. We love self. Have you ever been lawn bowling? Some of you, I'm sure. Most of us, probably not. But you've seen them there in the warm summer's evening, dressed in white, and there they have those bowls, and they're throwing them on that pristine lawn, and down goes the white ball, and then these teams trying to get their bowls closest to the white. Those bowls, they're biased, aren't they? They're weighted. There's lead on one side of that bowl. Meaning what? That whichever side the lead is on, when you throw that bowl, it is going to bend two, three, four feet in that direction. It is biased. It is inclined. That is the human heart. The human heart is biased by nature. It inclines a certain way. And the basic operating system of the human heart is this. It is love of self. Do you know what that means? It means Paul tells us, therefore, no one does anything good in God's sight. Why? Because everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is corrupted by that principle of self-love. 
even those things which seem good are but filthy rags in the sight of God because they flow from a polluted stream. You add to that the many sins we commit. Oh, the many sins and transgressions that have characterized our lives. Oh, we find ourselves in a desperate situation, a desperate state before a holy God. And yet we hear the Apostle Paul declare to the Romans what? There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Why in Christ Jesus? Because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who became sin for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hangs upon Calvary's cross, and my iniquity, my self-love, and everything that has flowed from that polluted stream throughout my life, all of it counted, reckoned, to Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross where he pays the penalty in full, giving his life, paying the ransom, making atonement before a holy God. And having come to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, oh, I celebrate right there along with the Apostle Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, God has become my Redeemer. You know, there might be one, there might be two. I trust I'm preaching to the choir, but there might be one. There might be two right here. There might be one or two watching from home. You need to hear that. You know you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you're not numbered among his people. And oh my friend, how I beg you, I plead with you to take stock of your life. Just take stock of it. And see the life you have lived and understand it through the lens of God. And what it is he requires of you that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will see the countless ways in which you have fallen short of that. And then I would plead with you to look away from yourself and to fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a prayer, here's the simple prayer right out of Psalm 51. You can do no better than that which came from the lips of David himself. Wash me. Wash me, O Lord, and I shall be whiter than snow. And as one of the old theologians put it centuries ago, hundreds of years ago, he celebrated this wonderful reality God is more willing to pardon than to punish. More willing to pardon than to punish. We see it in the story of the prodigal son, don't we? We're all familiar with that parable. You have the two sons. Both of them are actually rebels. The older son stays home. He rebels by being good, but basically he's just waiting for his father to die so he can get the inheritance. The younger, he's give me the inheritance now. And off he goes and he wastes it all squanders it. Then he finds himself in the midst of the pigsty, eating the husks of corn that are there to feed the pigs. He comes to his senses, and he reasons with himself, I'll go home, and I'll beg my father's mercy. Perhaps he'll receive me as a servant. 
What do we read as that parable unfolds? What is the Lord Jesus, what's the next scene as the Lord Jesus shares this parable? The father is watching. And when the father sees that young son coming a long way off, what does he do? He waits for him to draw near and grovel in front of him. He waits for him to clean his act up and get his life together. He pulls out of a list of a hundred things that that young man must do now to prove himself. None of that, friends. When the father spies his son coming a long way off, before the son says or does anything, what is the father's response? He runs headlong for that young man. And he embraces him and he receives him. Oh God is far more willing to pardon than to punish. And he offers such wondrous forgiveness to all who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he becomes to us our redeemer. And as our redeemer, he is the Lord of peace. He is the Lord of peace because he is our sovereign. He is the Lord of peace because he is our redeemer. And he is the Lord of peace because he is our father. Galatians chapter four. When the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, it's the incarnation, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, he has poured forth, sent forth, the Holy Spirit into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Tom is good when an old theologian, he tells, he uses this illustration. He speaks of a father and a son. There they are out for a walk in the countryside. A father with his four, five, six-year-old son. And as they walk along, the son, he knows his father loves him. His father provides for him. His father protects him. His father disciplines him when necessary. The son cognitively knows, recognizes, understands that his father loves him. But all of a sudden, unexpectedly, the father scoops up his son in his arms, gives him a huge bear hug, plants a kiss on his forehead. He's young enough, he can still get away with that. Plants a kiss on his forehead and whispers in his son's ear, I love you. Does the son have any new information? He has no new information. But the son now has experienced the father's love in a way that is what? Overwhelming. The father sends forth the spirit into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Romans 5, 5, it's something of a parallel text. Paul actually states it slightly differently there. He tells us the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Through, who, through whom? Through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That in Christ Jesus we now come to God and we celebrate that he has taken us as his children and he has now pledged himself to us as our God, our Father, our Sovereign, our Redeemer, 
and our Father. He is the Lord of peace as he stands in relation to his people. It brings us to the second question. It is this. When does God give this peace? We'll return to our text. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace when? At all times and in every way. We could spend the rest of the day filling in the blank here at all times and in every way, restricting ourselves to this letter, just the letter, 2 Thessalonians. When does God give peace? Go back to chapter one. And there in chapter one, we discover that these believers are afflicted. They're afflicted. Afflicted why? They're pers- being persecuted. Some of them have been persecuted by the Jews who've resented, resented the, the, the idea of Christ as the Messiah. Some of them undoubtedly have been persecuted by the Gentiles for rejecting their idolatry and, and the false gods and that entire system that is part and parcel of their community, of their communal life. And because they are following the Lord Jesus, they are suffering this terrible persecution, afflicted. And that might, be very, that might very well be you this day. As you think of your life, you would describe it in those terms, affliction. There could be opposition in the home. There could be opposition from an unbelieving spouse, for all I know. There could be growing, increasing opposition in the workplace. You might simply be feeling it, feeling the weight of opposition as we now find ourselves in a society, in a country, which for some time has unofficially been opposed to Christianity, but is now very much officially opposed to Christianity. Not the country I grew up in, being born in the 60s. Oh my, how things have changed. And the weight, the weight of now finding ourselves in a society in which we will be increasingly marginalized. Oh, the affliction and the need for peace. As we move into chapter two, we discover that these believers are alarmed. Why, what do we read about in chapter two? That there are some in their midst who have got a little bit too much apocalyptic fever, right? And they're starting to read the signs and the times and the day of the Lord has already come, and it's unsettling, unsettling the faith of the church, and they're alarmed by what they're hearing. Now, my friend, if you spend any time on social media, media, you are undoubtedly alarmed, especially this past year and a half, and all that is spewed on social media, sadly, much of it coming from professing Christians and all the conspiracy theories and all this talk and all these things, and you find yourself so agitated and you find yourself all alarmed, especially as so much of it is shrill and so contrary to the tenor of the gospel and the very nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the need for peace when we feel ourselves overwhelmed and alarmed by circumstances and contrary voices around us. And we come into chapter three and we discover that these saints are assailed. By whom? By the devil himself. He's attacking. And we know what it is to be attacked by the devil, do we not? 
We know what it is to experience temptation, to face temptation daily in a world that now celebrates decadence at an alarming rate, in a world for which immorality has been common, become commonplace, and we feel the weight of it. We carry it around at times like a burden and just feel as though we're under attack and constantly assailed, tempted to this sin, tempted to doubt this, and oh, the need for peace. We're staying in chapter 3. We discover that these believers were also agitated. Why? Because of some of their own number. Sad but true. Church at Thessalonica had had some problems. One of his most serious problems was this. There was a, this, this, this element, with this, this suffering from this chronic ailment called laziness. Unwilling to work. Bringing disrepute upon the gospel. Dishonor upon the name of Christ. And dishonor upon the testimony of the church. And the, this element within the church had become a thorn in the side whereby Paul actually has to exhort these believers to persevere in doing good and to not grow weary. And that may very well be you for all I know. Just this growing sense of weariness as you look out upon the church. Just this constant feeling of agitation. Even when it comes to the people of God. Oh, the number of people I know who have fallen away in the last couple of years. And I'm talking about people I perceive to be pillars of the faith. The number of churches currently in civil war over trivial matters. The amount of dissension and just the, the language and rhetoric at times that we're witnessing in our day. It's disheartening. There's no other word for it. It's downright discouraging. Oh, the need for peace. Now, whatever our circumstances of life, whatever the causes of the storms that assail us, that we can know a calm assurance, a calm assurance that resides deep within the trusting soul. Why? Because our God is the Lord of peace, our sovereign, our redeemer, and our Father. It brings us to a third obvious question. It is this. How does he give this peace? Look again at our text. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. There's the answer to the third question. How does he give peace he gives peace by being with us. Now you might immediately think to yourself, hold on a second. May the Lord of peace, may the Lord be with you all. I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ Jesus. And I know and I celebrate and rightly so that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hold on a second. To be a Christian is to be near to God. To be a Christian is to know God as our Father. So why is Paul here now praying the Lord be with you? I thought the Lord was with me already. And I thought the Lord was with me at all times. 
Oh, when it comes to scripture, how important are definitions and how important are distinctions. Be very careful to distinguish between, to distinguish between what it means to be in Christ and the positional closeness, nearness, relationship we enjoy with God. It is something that does not change. It is something that does not waver. When we receive the Lord Jesus through faith, we become one with Christ and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. It knows no ebbs or flows. It is a positional, unchanging reality. But in Scripture, there is actually another kind of closeness or nearness. We might call it, it's not a positional closeness, but an actual closeness. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Paul here now prays, the Lord be with you all. What are they referring to? What are they describing? They are describing our actual experience of that positional reality, whereby in our experience we know the Lord is near, and we know we are certain of His closeness to us when divine truths become lively. Oh, when divine truths become lively, not mere intellectual abstracts that we have known since Sunday school, but truths that grip the heart, truths that enliven the affections. It is times such as these that the Lord does indeed draw near. In the context of 2 Thessalonians, there are two truths in particular that when they become lively to us, oh, the Lord draws near to us. First is this, His loving kindness. Back in chapter two, verse 13, Paul inserts a wonderful description of these believers. He describes them as those who are beloved of God. Oh, to know daily what it means to be numbered among the beloved of God. To know daily God's loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, he describes an occasion, we're way back in the 1800s now, he describes an occasion, he recalls this walk in the countryside with a close friend, it was a stormy, blustery day, And as they made their way along, they came to a shed or a barn, and on the top was a weather vane. And on that weather vane, these words, God is love. And there it was in the wind, just blowing, spinning around madly. And Spurgeon, a little annoyed, turned to his friend and said, I don't agree with that at all. Look at that, God is love, spinning in the wind. That's not right, that's that's depicting falsehood right there. And his friend put a kind arm, hand on Spurgeon's shoulder and just encouraged him to calm down. And says, Charles, I think you've misunderstood the meaning. The meaning of the weather vane is this. Whichever way the wind blows, God is love. And he has made known his love. He has revealed it in sending his son into this world. 
And that Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed it and declared it by offering up Himself upon Calvary's cross as a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God. And now the Spirit has been poured out in our hearts testifying to that reality. And oh, to know God's loving kindness. Again, not merely an abstract truth, friends. Not merely the ability to recite Scripture, however important and profitable that is. But a truth that becomes lively. A truth that embraces us and overwhelms us. Oh, it's at times like these that the Lord of peace draws near. The second truth is this that's emphasized in 2 Thessalonians. It's God's faithfulness. You have it, for example, right here in our chapter, the third. Back in verse three, the opening statement, what does Paul declare? The Lord is, the Lord is faithful. Oh, his loving kindness and his faithfulness. God is faithful because our God is unchangeable. James celebrates every good and perfect gift comes from above, doesn't it? From the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, nor shadow due to change. What's that all about? He's referring to the stars and sun and moon. And he's saying, look, just as those, the, the planets and the stars and the sun, they cast shadows on the earth. And they cast shadows, the most obvious being night and day. And we're in this constant flux. And these shadows, they come and they go because things are always changing. Well, understand this. Our God is the Father of lights. He created all of them. And in him there is no variation nor shadow doing to change. There are no processes outside of God's nature or within God's nature that cause them to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is unchangeable, he is faithful, steadfast in his promises. And so as the Israelites come out of the land of Egypt, and there they are on the way to the land of Canaan, Amalek, the Amalekites come out to attack. Do you remember this? And Moses goes up on the mountain and he prays. And as his hands are raised up, Israel prevails. As his hands descend, Amalek, the sons of Amalek prevail. Aaron and Ur are there. They grab hold of each of his arms and hold them in the air. His hands were steady, we read. His hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Steady, it's from which we get our word faithfulness. To be faithful is to be steady. It's to be steadfast. It's to be dependable. And God is all of these because he is unchangeable. Absolute certainty that our God will fulfill his promises. Take two. Oh, take two to heart. Memorize these if you haven't. Make them your daily meditation and your daily delight until they become lively to you. The first is this, right out of Romans 8:28. Most of you could probably stand up and belt it from heart, could you not? We know. What do we know? We know that God works all things together for good. To those who love him, and are called according to his purpose. And the other is there, is it 1 Peter 1, 5, isn't it? If it's verse 5, it's around there. You look, you'll find it. And there Peter celebrates what? He tells us that we are being kept. 
We are being kept. We are being guarded. We are being protected. We are being preserved for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Oh, my friend, understand this, please. Life does not always go well, but it always ends well for the believer. Why? Because the Lord of peace is ours, and he is, yes, our sovereign, our redeemer, and our father. And in all circumstances of life, he draws near by making eternal realities real to us, and none more important than his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Alan Gardner, he was a veteran of the War of 1812. He was on the right side, the side of the British. He was in the Navy. And after he was decommissioned after that war, he became a missionary. And he went off to Africa for a time and preached the gospel. And then he made his way to South America, the very southern tip of South America. He was trying to reach unreached peoples on some of the islands. He was shipwrecked on an uninhabited island with some of his shipmates, a handful of them. They had no provisions. There was no way of sustaining himself, sustaining them on that island. No rescue came. And they slowly, over a course of months, are starved to death. Alan Gardner, a missionary, a servant of the Lord. Some months later, they did find them, a search party, and they found their bodies there on the beach of this island, Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. And there they were, Alan Gardner, and beside him, his, his journal. And flipping through the journal, the very last entry, do you know what it was? Anybody ever heard this? It was the following. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Are you there, friend? Am I there? What is that? What kind of faith is that? That is a man who knew the Lord of peace. Not removal from the difficulties of life not running and fleeing from the trials and the struggles and the pain and the suffering, but knowing a calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul, even amid the storms of life. Oh, says Paul, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we do make this our simple prayer this day, that you would be well pleased to glorify your name, magnify your name in us by enlarging our hearts that we truly might abound in faith, hope, and love and know this peace which passes far surpasses all understanding we do thank you for the gift of salvation in your son jesus christ and for those of us who know him we count ourselves a privileged people for all those gifts and blessings and privileges that accrue to us through him 
And so receive our thanks, receive our praise, receive our worship as we offer it in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 20. May the God of peace, whom through the blood of our eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus, in whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.